everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 21, and today I'm going to talk about FSC, or the Forest Stewardship Council. This is really a certification, legality, environmental schema, if you will. It's become the de facto symbol for legal, sustainable forestry, at least in North America. And what I want to talk about is... Is it really all as cracked up to be? But first, I do want to say thank you to the new patrons who supported the show this week. Thanks to Andrew and Stephen who came on board. Many, many thanks, gentlemen. And the uh, launch of the new YouTube channel has kind of been delayed because, well, frankly, that milestone number we wanted to hit, we hit it and then fell well below it and then creep near it and then fell below it again. And just as the ebb and flow of, of Patreon supporters come and go, and I kind of wanted to let it stabilize before we launch into that. But I think I'm about ready to to launch that. So stay tuned to this episode. Also, I will mention this again at the end, but it occurs to me I've been a little remiss and I keep asking for people to to write in and submit questions and I kind of forget (laughs) to, to say where to do that. So it's been several episodes since I have, but this entire show is housed over at lumberupdate.com. You can find all of the episodes there. There is a contact form there up in the nav bar. There's a big thing that says contact or submit a question or something like that and it drops you into a form where you can submit questions or you can send voicemails, voice recordings to lumberupdate at gmail.com. I've had several people who've contacted me lately and and asked, how do I get in touch with you? I've also had quite a few people who have uh, direct messaged me on Twitter, some people who've direct messaged me on Instagram, even on Facebook. And that's fine. It just makes it a little bit harder for me to stay organized. So if you do have a question for the show, submit it via the form on lumberupdate.com or again, send me an email at lumberupdate at gmail.com. It's just the surest way to make sure that I'm seeing it. I got a lot of email inboxes and a lot of different little kind of businesses that I'm juggling at this point. So it's just uh, better to kind of keep it all in one place. So I want to talk a little bit about some feedback. Specifically on the last episode, I was talking about um, heat treatment certificates and and how uh, companies are not using pesticides. And I was corrected. And honestly, well, anytime you make absolutes like that, you're bound to be wrong, right? This is not entirely true that people are not treating the lumber. There are examples where people are spraying the lumber down when it comes off the sawmill and while it's going into the air dry yard. In other words, before it goes into the kiln, there is this period of time that could be a couple of weeks. It could be six months. It could be a year where that freshly sawn lumber is sitting out in an air drying yard. And this is a time when it's particularly susceptible to boring insects because all those sugars and fresh, sweet smells. I mean, if you've ever freshly sawn a log, you know what I'm talking about. It smells wonderful. Well, it depends on the species, I suppose. But for the most part, you know, it's very, very wet and it's filled with sugars and things. Even when it's been felled in the winter, you're going to have that sweet smell of the living tree. And that's going to bring the boring insects in from miles away. They love that. So in an effort to kind of put a Band-Aid on that while the lumber is air drying, um, some lumber yards will spray things down, but they're not really using pesticides. And I don't want to say they're absolutely not. I'm sure there are some people out there who are using it. But I heard from Sean Graham. You guys might know him, his YouTube channel, Worth the Effort, down in Texas. Sean did a, um, what, a almost a documentary piece on his channel about the lumber industry and he had talked to a a firm down in texas that is spraying their stuff with um 
a borax solution. This is the, the cleaning product that a lot of you are probably very familiar with. It's not overtly a pesticide, but it's what they call boracare. It's a salt made from borax and boric acid. So, you know, of course, they're diluting it down a fair amount. But the idea is, is it's putting that um, barrier over top that's going to um, uh, buffer some of the some of the acid, some of the sweetness in the wood. But it's not really like some nasty DDT type pesticide that a lot of people are thinking of. It's kitchen products, it's cleaning products, and that can provide just enough of a barrier while that lumber is air drying. And again, it could be a couple weeks up to many, many months for this. The key that I want you to take away from from the last episode is the only acceptable heat treatment by the, the, the U.S. government in transporting from one area to another is a heat treatment. So when you are ready to start moving that lumber and say you need a phytosanitary or you need to move it uh, from, from um, you, you need to be able to say it's, it's pesticide free, the only thing acceptable there is the heat treatment. So even these companies that are spraying it with this um, borosil product are still then kiln drying it. So that spraying is that temporary measure before it goes into the kiln. That's really the only way to determine or to be certain that you're killing off those bugs. So absolutely. I, I misspoke in saying that no one is doing this. If you are also buying air dried lumber, that is something to think about. But even if it has been sprayed with uh, um, any kind of solution, it's not 100% effective. And this is why kiln dried material is so important, why that heat treatment is so important. So just keep that in mind. Also, I've been hearing from quite a few people about this show on Netflix called Broken. It's it's kind of a consumer watchdog type show. In every episode, they talk about certain products that are in our marketplace and, and how they are, well, broken or how manufacturing processes could be better. Specifically, episode three talks about furniture and the real issue that um, we've had in, in North America of um child deaths from tipping dressers and you know this puts uh this puts ikea firmly in the crosshairs and from that perspective it's, it's really interesting to look at this but there's a lot in this episode about the sourcing of lumber and a sustainable legal sourcing of lumber because if you didn't know ikea has something like one percent they bring in one percent of like the entire world's uh, volume of lumber. They are a huge consumer of lumber. But there's a couple of really interesting parts in there where um, an environmental activist is actually in a Romanian forest and he actually confronts uh, a logging crew that's in there. It's really kind of terrifying stuff. It's also kind of heartbreaking because he catches these guys sawing lumber in a protected area and there's really not a thing he can do about it other than film it and document it with the hopes of, of busting them and shutting them down because it's one guy and like a log crew of six or seven big burly lumberjacks with chainsaws and axes and he's like well, you know what am i gonna do go and stop them and get myself killed and you know it, it, you could see the tension in there the guy gets pushed around several times at one point he actually confronts a, a logging truck on its way into a manufacturer and the guy gets maced so it is definitely the wild west in some parts of the country and this really clearly brings it into focus so um i want to thank probably the, <laughs> the 20 or 30 people who brought up broken on netflix to me it's it's worth the whole episode is really quite fascinating especially 
because so many of us make furniture and it's something to, to look into as well, the whole tipping furniture thing. But even if you watch it just specifically for that, um, the, those shots in the forest, it was really very kind of cool to see that. Now, um, I do have, let's see, I've got a voicemail here that came in from Andrew and it's going back to the bug issue. So here's Andrew. Hey Shannon, my name is Andy. I'm calling from Central Pennsylvania, and I've got a question as a follow-up to uh, talking about infestation and uh, heat treating uh, lumber. So I'm an auction guy. I live in the middle of Pennsylvania, and there's a lot of retiring and um, woodworkers. I'm, I go into a lot of sales. I buy old tools, old shop stuff, and a lot of lumber. I've got several species, quite a few board feet. Uh, I, I kind of look like a wood hoarder, quite honestly. Uh, it's a risk you take you're not sure what might be in the pile sometimes but i get stuff really really cheap and then i you know i have a joiner and a planer so it's uh you know i I enjoy you know getting this old rough cut lumber sometimes it's been in storage um you know for decades with some of these fellas. Um, so I specifically want to ask about uh, a, a score of ash I got recently. I went to a sale just a couple weeks ago and I bought a good bit of ash, uh, but the majority was truly ash and uh, no surprise, several holes uh, from the emerald ash borer. This was air dried lumber uh, that I don't believe ever saw a kiln, but in some of it was cut. The, the I think 90, 1998 was written on one of the boards. So we're talking, you know, good old stock. There were some spots in this lumber that I, I basically took my circular saw and just cut out, cut off pieces and and threw um, the offcuts on a pile outside my garage. But I did save some of the longer pieces of these boards that had the holes. Some of them have one or two holes in them, not enough that I want to throw it away. My only concern would be just because I don't see the holes if they went in one part of the board, should I go ahead and assume that the entire thing is crawling with bugs throughout? I I don't get that impression, but, you know, I don't want to build something and then have it later, you know, turn out that it's, um, you know, still got live critters. So maybe heat treating all of it, I understand would be best practices. Um, but I'm just wondering if, if you know, if, if I might be taking a huge risk in just cutting away the holy parts and using what's not. Um, so anyway, love the show. Great episode. And as a guy who lives in the middle of the, you know, wooded areas and really never understood wood until I started looking at woodworking a couple years ago, this show has been uh, an absolute favorite of mine. And I'm going to go uh, become a Patreon supporter right now. So any insight you might have, uh, appreciate it very much. And thanks again for the show. Okay, great. So there is a perfect example where in, in our foraging and in estate sales and things like that, you're going to come across lumber where the origin and how it's been treated might be questionable if entirely unknown. And here's the situation where a bunch of ashes come up, you know, it's been air dried and there is evidence of bugs in here. So first thing you did right was absolutely the parts that are that are really bad, cut them off and get rid of them. Um, I would recommend uh, either mulching that stuff up or burning it. Um, if there are actually live active critters in the offcut stuff, leaving them in the driveway um, for any amount of time could be bad as those bugs could then transfer over to other lumber you may have in the area. So don't just throw that stuff in the dumpster. You're probably going to want to burn it or at least chip it up. Um, the uh, like municipalities and things like that that are taking down trees because they're known to have been infested with bugs, they actually run it through a chipper and that is supposed to be sufficient. Um, 
I actually don't know if that is fully sufficient, not being an entomologist. Um, my penchant would be to burn it, um, put it in the fire pit and use it for warmth. Heck, it's cold outside. Now, with the lumber that's left over, what I would recommend you do First of all, sticker that lumber because you're going to want it to acclimate anyway. It's probably not needing to do a lot of acclimation considering how old it is. But more importantly, you want to sticker it, set it aside from the rest of your lumber, kind of quarantine it if it will. And it can be outside. You can put a tarp over it or something like that. Just keep it away from some of the other lumber you have and observe those holes. When the boring insect is doing its job, you know, it's in there munching away and it's creating sawdust, that sawdust has to be pushed out of the hole. So you will find little piles of sawdust around those holes you're seeing. If there are no piles of sawdust, then there are no active boring insects in there. Now there may be an insect in the hole, but it's dead because it's not actually doing what it's doing. So, you know, the only exception to this would be really, really large, like either really thick or really wide boards. And the uh, boring insect may have created a particularly long tunnel. And some of the sawdust has just been pushed not all the way out. But even then, eventually they have to push the sawdust all the way out or Frankly, they plug up their holes and they suffocate. So you do need to see those little piles of sawdust to indicate that there are active insects in there. If you're just seeing holes and no piles of sawdust, then you're probably okay. Again, I say probably because the only surefire way to be certain is to heat treat it. Now, here's the other thing. If you're finding yourself in a situation, as you said at the beginning of your voicemail, where you're, you're getting a lot of lumber, it's probably a good idea for you to think about building a kiln. And you could build a solar kiln you know, unless you're handling 15, 20 foot long boards, which it doesn't sound like you're running into, there's nothing wrong with cutting your lumber down to size to fit into a kiln. And, you know, building uh, like a lean to type solar kiln, like out in the backyard or something, you could very easily fit eight foot boards in there with very little, um, you know, material from the Home Depot in order to build that kiln. I would Google solar kiln and you might hate me for that because you're going to come up with a lot of, of answers. And it's not particularly difficult to, to do this. Um, controlling the temperature is probably the hardest part of the thing. Uh, I, I'm talking at my butt at this point because I have not built a solar kiln. I've seen many of them in operation. I know a lot of people who've built them and it's kind of a, a, an easy way to get into drying lumber and it can help you to be sure that the boards are okay. But here's the other thing. The older the board is, the less appeal the, the sugary sweet innards of the board have. The stuff dries out, right? Even an air-dried board will come in an equilibrium and dependent upon your region, it can be quite low. Rarely are you going to see it dropping to 6 to 8% like in kiln-dried material unless you live in the desert somewhere, in which case it drops even lower than 6%. At that point, the wood becomes quite hard. Um, the sugars and, and, and the nutrients in the food that the insects go after, really, it goes bad. And they're not the bugs are not particularly interested. So there may have been boring insects in there, as indicated by those holes. But if you're not seeing those piles of sawdust, they probably have moved on. The board has seasoned enough that it's just not appetizing anymore, and the bugs have moved on. It's also highly possible that the areas that you cut off, there are no bugs, and they moved on there but they had their way with it enough that the structural stability of the wood is probably not worthwhile, you know, and you tap on the board and it, it rattles because there's lots of hollow parts in there, which is the other aspect for the boards that you've kept where there are holes 
you can kind of tap on the board, both sides, both faces, and really see, does it sound solid? If it sounds solid, then you're probably okay. And as you begin to cut it into pieces for a project, pay very close attention to um, where those trails go. And there's also the possibility that you could end up using that as a feature and you could fill those holes. Say you rip a board and you expose like the long side uh, of a boring uh, track. Well, you could fill that with epoxy and call it spalted. So lots of things to look at, mostly just observe looking for those sawdust piles. And in the long run, it might be a good idea to fashion yourself some sort of solar kiln that you can put those boards in if you continually are finding yourself in a situation where you're getting a lot of lumber that you can't be certain about its origin. Or if you don't want to go to that extreme, you can look into places that will dry for you. There's many sawmills out there that will uh, let you use space in their kiln. I have no idea how much they charge for that, but it's worth looking into. So moving on here, um, now that we've addressed bugs and pests and all that fun stuff, I wanted to talk about FSC. And I get a lot of questions about FSC lumber and I get a lot of people saying, well, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying about you know, you need to buy exotics in order to keep the market viable so that uh, the trees themselves are, are managed well. But I want to stick to something that I can be certain has been managed well, and I'm going to continue to buy FSC. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not anti-FSC. The Forest Stewardship Council is a good thing. What they're doing is a good thing. But it's not the only game in town, and this is what we need to think about. Moreover, even though what they're doing is a good thing, FSC is not a rubber stamp that says, oh, it's all legal, it's all perfectly good, it's all environmental, I can sleep well at night. In environmental, is that a word? Is it, It's all environmentally sustainable, and now I can sleep well. I only buy FSC lumber so I can hold my head high and know that I'm not contributing to deforestation. That's not really how FSC works. And this is, I think, the biggest confusion about FSC. First of all, it is a massive, massive political organization with a huge amount of lobbying power because they are, you know, what their mission is falls very much in line with entities like Greenpeace who have enormous lobbying power and a great deal of pressure can be brought to bear on lawmakers when Greenpeace doesn't like you. So it's something to think about. The other thing is FSC is the only material, only wood that is acceptable by the Green Building Council, the GBC, for LEEDS certification. So if you are building a building and you want to get your gold or your platinum LEED certification as a green building and you want to go after the FSC credit or the wood credit, it has to be FSC would. No other certification, no other verification schema is acceptable other than FSC. And this is where things get really political. And there have been many attempts to broaden that, to allow other certifications from other certifying bodies uh, abroad, specifically in Europe. And it has been shut down every single time. This is what I mean about the lobbying and the political power that, that FSC has. So Moreover, you read a lot of FSC's material and very, they're very big on saying, hey, once you become an FSC material, you can now display your FSC logo. And it's all about branding. We are environmentally conscious. We um, adhere to an FSC audit. We have been audited to be a green organization. Look at us, look at us, here's our logo. 
Now that's that's great from a marketing perspective. That logo has become synonymous with green, right? And if you can show that logo, you are a green company. And that is really that's what drives a lot of people, folks. It's not so much, oh, we're being environmentally conscious. Look at us. We can be competitive because we're a green company. FSC is good in that respect that it it uh, inspires people to seek after that logo, to be able to display that logo. Moreover, it's important that you realize when you see that logo on you know a pad of paper or on a, on a board or on a company website, that logo, if you look real close, there generally is a, a unique identifying number below it, usually a chain of custody COC number below it. It's not just the random FSC logo that somebody grabbed off their website. You have to have been audited and approved by FSC in order to display that logo. And in fact, um, every, every time we get audited, let me back up. The certification is good for five years. When your company becomes an, off, an FSC provider, it's good for five years, but you get audited annually. And every time they come and audit us um, and we, you know, and we pass, I then have to go to FSC's website, plug in some our, our login information, and it will actually spit out a custom logo for us that I can use. And I can only use it in certain ways. And that logo has a unique chain of custody number that is specific to the, the McIlvain Lumber Company. So when you're going and you're buying lumber, it's not just some, you know, logo that was pulled off the net and stuck on there. Look close. You should see a unique number there. If you don't, that's not right. <laughs> that's actually in violation of FSC policies. You can't just throw the logo on there. It has to be your generated logo with your identifier, your company identifier on it. So that could be a bit of a red flag. Is this lumber actually FSC? Where is your chain of custody number or where is your forestry management number? So there is some traceability. I shouldn't say traceability. There is some accountability in there and the fact that if you are an FSC provider, you are getting audited every single year. But here's the thing, and this is with any any certification schema. You can't have an organization standing there and watching your day-to-day practices every single day. They audit you once a year. And it's not a surprise audit, at least not as far as I know. I've never known them to do a surprise audit. We know, always know exactly when they're coming. So, you know, you get your house in order and you're good for that audit. Now, that's not to say that, you know, people are actively, okay, the FSE guy's gone. Quick, people, bring in the, you know, the illegal lumber. In order to pass an FSE audit, this is not stuff that you can just like cram the night before or, you know, push a bunch of stuff under the rug. It, it's showing long-term manufacturing processes, shipping processes, forestry management processes, all that stuff. You can't just fake this. So if you've become certified, it's pretty legit. And all the the audit is doing is really just making sure things aren't slipping or sliding one way or another or pointing uh, pointing out potential points of improvement. You know, if, if there were 100 things that you needed to to pass and, you know, passing grade, we'll just go with, you know, the typical, we'll say 70% is satisfactory. Well, there's 70 of those things you got to check. 30 can give you room for improvement later to get your score or whatever. So this is an ongoing thing. There are multiple certifications that FSC offers. There is a chain of custody that allows you to to uh, inventory and to move FSC material. And then there is all the way upstream, the forestry management certification. And that's where it starts. If you are a Sawyer, if you are a paper products person who actually has a concession of forest, you 
can become an FSC provider by passing their forestry management. And that, again, is you can't just make this stuff up overnight. You have to show very clearly how you're managing that forest. So when we, I keep saying we, um, let's just say in general, when lumber providers are looking to buy FSC lumber. They have to buy it from an FSC lumber mill, an FSC forestry management certified uh, company or individual. So we get that material from them and then we have to maintain chain of custody and traceability throughout our supply chain. So when when I say I'm an FSC, here's my COC number, that means I'm not really producing the material, but I'm buying the material and I'm inventorying it and managing it throughout. Here's where things start to fall apart. FSC works on a credit system. So as I have passed, uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, sawmill. I, I own a forest concession and I have become certified as an FSC forestry management provider. I am told by FSC that I have a certain number of FSC credits that I can produce annually. My operation, my concession, my forestry management plans, the sustainability side of things says that just for sake of argument, I can produce 100 credits of FSC material per month. Forget about the, the, the value of each credit. We'll just go with 100 credits. So I can then sell my 100 credits to various lumber dealers, retailers, etc. Those lumber dealers then take in 100 credits worth of FSC material. Now, they have 100 credits that they can then sell to their various customers. So if a builder comes to me and says, I need X thousand board feet of material and it needs to be FSC, I can translate that back to the number of credits I have in the bank, in my current inventory of FSC, and then sell that to him. One thing you will not find is it's not like that credit is tied to a species or to a specific pack of lumber. It's a net zero game. You know, 100 credits went into the market, 100 credits were consumed. So, you know, back to the forestry management thing, you have been certified as someone who's producing uh, sustainable, environmentally sustainable lumber, and it's it's legal. It has to be legal or it's not sustainable. So I produced 100 credits worth, I've sold 100 credits, and 100 credits has been consumed by, you know, somebody building something with it. So yay, 100 credits of good, legal, sustainable lumber has gone through the system. But is it a specific species? You know, it's not like you can come up and say, you know... I want to buy FSC mahogany. I need paperwork that says that this material is specifically FSC and it traces back to this lumber concession in this part of the world. It doesn't really do that. That's not really how FSC works. So just because there's an FSC stamp on it does not necessarily mean that that lumber you're holding in your hand is perfectly, dare I say, legal or perfectly green. It is is in a way from a paperwork perspective because those credits have been applied to that material. And this is where things get a little weird and I and it becomes very difficult to to not like <laughs> condemn FSC. And I really don't want this this episode to come across that way because you know any any light we can shine on on sustainable forestry practices is a good thing. And like I said, people striving to get that FSC logo is a good thing. It's forcing them to think in terms of sustainability. But 
there have been examples where we have, we're looking for, um, I would just use mahogany again, and the customer wants FSC. And I'll say, look, do you have any FSC mahogany? And the customer says, well, I don't have any mahogany, but I've got these FSC credits. I can sell you the credits and you can apply them to some mahogany elsewhere. And you see kind of where that falls apart. And according to the laws, the rules, this is not a bad thing. This is not illegal. This is not gerrymandering the system because it's still credits in, credits out. So this is back to that forestry management thing that says you can only produce X number of credits based upon your operation, based upon sustainable practices. You can only produce X number of credits. If you produce X number of credits and sell them, it's all good. If you produce X plus 100, that's bad and you're going to fail your audit. You have now not, you're not sustainably managing your forest because you've overlogged. You put that plus 100 in there. That's not good. But at the same time, you could log X plus 100, you just couldn't sell them. So you would sell your quota of credits and you may have this plus 100 whatever over here and you wait until your credits refresh and then you sell them again. So still, it's still a net zero gain. X credits went out, X credits were consumed. You can see where that starts to fall apart. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing because managing the lumber chain of custody can be particularly cumbersome, very difficult to manage. Where FSC really shines is in manufactured products. Pick up any notepad and look on the back or look somewhere in there and you're going to see an FSC logo on there. When it comes to paper products, when it comes to any number of manufactured products that come from trees, palm oil is a good example. That FSC logo is pretty legitimate there because generally the it's all kind of one entity. They FSC has gone and looked at that palm oil plantation and verified that they're raising those palm trees in a sustainable way that's an environmentally aware way. And they're manufacturing everything using that material. It's all kind of done in that one place. When you're talking about lumber, where you're felling trees, you're milling them into boards, the traceability falls apart when that log gets milled into a bunch of boards. You can no longer say that is absolutely FSC material, whereas a pad of paper that was milled from this plantation that has been an FSC certified plantation, you can say this paper is green paper because it came from there. It's really difficult to do that in the lumber industry because that lumber doesn't immediately become a product. That lumber goes out into the market and can go any number of places before it actually becomes a product, before it becomes um, you know, uh, a table. Where FSC in the lumber industry can be good is for production of, of softwood construction material like studs, because again, that material is it can be more quickly more quickly traced. Let's say, put it this way: it's closer to the source. We are specifically growing this forest to become studs. We harvest those trees at a certain age that's best for studs. They're not harvesting that tree, and then that tree could become seven different products. They are specifically growing that tree to be a stud, a two by four. So it it's it's much more purpose built right from the beginning. A hardwood lumber forest, there's just no way to know what that tree is going to become and it becomes very difficult to trace that so this is where that traceability thing becomes kind of a myth just because it's fsc mahogany doesn't necessarily mean that it's green lumber and here is where i start to 
call it what you will, I start to condemn FSC and look down my nose at it because it's become this like, oh my God, it's got to be FSC. And I immediately start asking people, well, why? Why do you need it to be FSC? Well, I want it to be green. Okay, great. Congratulations to you for being environmentally aware. But I'm sorry to tell you, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's green. What What do you want to know? Well, I want to know that this was logged in a responsible way from a, a, a particular area of the forest that I know is allowed to be cut down. FSC can't do that for you. I apologize. It just can't be done. This is where we have to look at other certification schemas and why it's continually frustrating that because really, why do people look for FSE in the commercial world? It's because they're trying to get lead certification. They're trying to build that green building. And this is why it's so frustrating that only FSC is allowed by the GBC for lead certification. You've got other entities like um, uh, uh, TLTV, uh, Timber Legality and Traceability Verification. This is put out by um, SGS. It's a, a, a European entity like FSC. They are, are, well, they're really an auditor. They are an independent auditor that's hired by various governments to provide oversight. So you've got this forest and you bring in SGS, the Society General de Surveillance. They come in and the this auditor then offers the the TLTV process to the private sector. So they're hired by the government to kind of verify everything. And then they turn back to the private sector and say, we have audited this. This has timber legality and traceability verification on it. So the process uses kind of regular auditing and continuous monitoring and verification of a particular company's wood production and all of their tracking information. The tracking information is important. So TLTV is providing kind of a combination of verification of the log and the timber production and tracking from the port back to the stump. They then audit the company's data and the specific legality issues of the region, taking into account all those local laws. This goes back to CITES. This goes back to the U.S. Lacey Act. Then they provide continuous data monitoring and processing throughout. So the TLTV process kind of covers everything that a lumber mill does. So... FSC is great when it comes to the forestry management certification. You know, you can rely on FSC to have looked at that that concession, that plantation, and make sure that the, the cutting plan is accurate, that the forest is managed properly. But FSC kind of falls apart at that point. And TLTV picks up where FSC leaves off. It picks up at the lumber has been felled and now it's being turned into logs and here's how we trace it. Another thing to look at actually is VLO or verification of legal origin. If you think of TLTV being able to cover all of the company processes during harvest processing and export, VLO takes kind of a closer look at the legal right to harvest the tree in the first place. Is there a current land concession that's in compliance with national and local laws? So VLO timbers have in-depth and highly maintained chain of custody system that really can be audited at any point in that chain of custody. And this starts to kind of step into that FSC area when we're looking at forestry management, but it's also more concerned with the detailed paper trail that proves where the log came from in the first place. Was Were you allowed to cut it down there? So FSC may again mean that that tree led a very happy life in a happy little forest, but VLO identifies that the happy, identifies that specific happy tree and then keeps track of it throughout. 
So again, a lot more in depth that, you know, once you're talking about hardwood lumber and lumber for made into boards, FSC's not real good at that. There's another one, um, verification of legal compliance or VLC. And let's see, um, VLO kind of makes sure that the mill took the tree from the legal place. VLC goes one step further and makes sure that the tree was taken in a legal manner. How was it cut down? Was it, you know, a no trace type cutting process? And it may seem like a, a minor difference where it came from. Was it legal where it came from? And was it le- how was it taken? But again, consideration of the state and local laws come heavily into play here. And things like low impact forestry techniques are very much considered when the cutting actually happens. So if those low impact techniques are not happening, and yes, that tree, you were allowed to cut that out of that particular hectare, but they trashed a bunch of stuff to get to that tree, that's not good. So it's it's not just FSC, and it's not just TLTV, or just VLO, or VLC, but taking into account all of these things, and really, they're kind of just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the options open to the worldwide market. But FSC continues to seem to be the de facto standard here in North America. But in many ways, it falls short of what people actually think it does. It is not an absolute rubber stamp that, bam, this is now green. You can sleep at night. Responsible forestry management, verification of legal use and harvest, attention to detail with all of those foreign state and local laws, as well as domestic state and local laws, they're all very, very important to whether or not that lumber is green. And it's important to protect ourselves, but more importantly, all of the customers downstream that you may, uh, that may buy from us, but, and, and, and that's you, that's the average woodworker. Every day, you're going to receive a bunch of lumber and you want to ensure that the lumber is, is legally obtained and not endangering the supply. It is sustainable. Just putting an FSC label on there, forgetting about that whole credit system and kind of the way that those credits can be shifted, FSC just doesn't cover that. So I wish I could say there was a certification out there that if you saw that logo on there, you can rest easy and that is absolutely well done. In the end, and I've said this any number of times, it comes down to asking questions. It comes down to understanding your supplier and making sure that they understand where things are coming from and what certifications have been done. Going to a customer and saying, I need to see the FSC paperwork for that particular walnut that I bought, they're not going to be able to produce it because there is no such thing. FSC can't do that. Now, you may be able to get some African mahogany and say, I'd like to see the VLO on that, or you know, what certification schemas were brought into bear here? Well, this is TLTV African mahogany. Um, this is VLO, uh, uh, Southeast Asian Luan. Well, now there's going to be paperwork that shows the traceability back to that stump. Now, it's rarely going to be one piece of paper that says first it started here, then it went here, like a, like a uh, UPS tracking <laughs> document. No, generally there are reams of paper that are involved in all this, and it's very difficult to just send someone a document, but this comes back to kind of the traceability and the system that's used to process inventory and to trace that inventory back to its source. And this is why we rely upon things like VLO and VLC and TLTV and the third party auditing nature that's going to track everything um, kind of agnostically, not tied to a particular business or to a particular government, and therefore not 
necessarily, I say necessarily, I wish I could say absolutely, not necessarily caught up in the political lobbying side of things that oftentimes FSC does get caught up in that. So guys, like usual, this is like the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of ins and outs into FSC. And please, please don't misunderstand me and say that I'm saying FSC is bad. I have my concerns with FSC. I have my frustrations with them, but usually I I should, let me rephrase that. I'm not frustrated with FSC. What I'm frustrated with is how they have created this air of, of absolute it's green. And therefore the customer base that comes to us and says, I need FSC and they don't really know what they're asking for. They, everybody wants green lumber, right? We all want to protect the environment, but just because it has an FSC logo on it doesn't necessarily mean that it's green. And you need to be aware of that, be aware of the loopholes in the system that are not any fault necessarily FSC. I think they're doing the best they can. And at certain areas, it works well, but it's impossible to have one certification to be able to track everything all the way from stump to the settee you just built in your living room. Let me know if you have questions, folks. There's a lot to talk about here, and I could probably go on for another hour getting to the ins and outs of this. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your questions. I'd love to hear your feedback. If anybody has experience with FSC, lay it on me. Let's let's talk about it further if need be. And just a reminder, if you do have questions, go to lumberupdate.com. There's a form that you can fill out your questions there, or you can send me a voice recording to lumberupdate at gmail.com. And as always, thank you to my Patreon supporters. If you want to support the show, I'd love you for it. Go to patreon.com slash lumberupdate and become a sponsor today. Thanks, everybody. Go buy some lumber. Even if it doesn't have an FSC logo on it, it might still be green.